Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are going deep, deep back in time to talk about the world before forests and how plants may have changed the atmosphere compared to what was previously thought. Spoiler alert, little plants often have massive impacts, especially compared to their forest-making cousins. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Tice W. Dahl. He's a geobiologist from Denmark, and he, along with his colleagues, have done some amazing work trying to understand what the atmosphere was like over 400 million years ago and the role plants played in shaping it. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to say, consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash plants because I literally could not be doing this podcast each and every week without the contributions of my patrons. If you're enjoying the show, you have them to thank. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's get on with it because this is absolutely fascinating work. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Tice W. Dahl. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Tice Dahl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am really excited to pick your brain today, but first, introduce yourself. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm Tice uh, Dahl. I'm an associate professor at University of Copenhagen. I have a background in uh, planetary science, actually. I was trained as a physicist, and I got interested in how life has changed our planet. And then I went on to do a PhD, which was uh, yeah, mainly uh, trying to track how life has evolved over the history of Earth. Hmm. And then I got into geobiology and paleontology. And yeah, so much of my, my training was actually in the US, even though I'm in Denmark and I'm from Denmark. Uh, so, uh, so I'm really delighted to, uh, to give a little bit back to uh, the US now. <laughs> Excellent. And it's curious how physics factors into the study of how life originated, how life evolved over time. It may not always be obvious to those that don't spend time in the literature. So how do you connect the world of physics and chemistry to trying to understand life, especially in the deep, deep past? Yeah, so basically, um, we're working in a field called geobiology now, and uh, uh, it's Funny because I'm not trained as a biologist. Uh, I always wanted to become a geologist, but I was trained as a physicist. And basically, one of the big questions for us uh, in geobiology is uh, how did life actually transform or impact the environment and the physical conditions uh, on our planet? And in, in, in this effort of understanding how, for instance, the appearance of plants have transformed uh, the atmospheric composition and the composition of the oceans. We're using techniques from physics. We're using our knowledge from chemistry, and we apply it to geology, to materials that we collect from, and we can study in rocks. and And we also need to know about uh, how life evolved and how 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 uh, biology actually works and, and how it actually produces gases like oxygen and consumes gases like CO2. So all of these things go together in, in, in a new field, you could say. Um, so I think everyone from geobiology uh, is different. And, uh, and, and this is also the, the, the fun part of being in the field. 
Yeah, I bet you're bringing people in with all different sort of lines of inference and, and different techniques for studying these sorts of things. But what I love most about looking at research like yours and, and that of your colleagues is just this idea of life affecting the physical environment. We usually in the biological realm think of it in the other direction. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, especially when you start factoring in plants and, and the sheer amount of time and space that you work over, you could start to really mm -hmm. understand or at least pick apart how different forms of life, like you said, may affect the atmosphere or the geological surfaces they're growing on. It's it's wild to think about it going in that direction, especially if you don't, again, spend a lot of time in the literature. Yeah, it's really striking because, I mean, every oxygen molecule that we breathe right now as we speak is produced by a plant, an algae, or a cyanobacteria somewhere. And actually, quite recently, uh, so there's a really fast interaction between uh, you and I, uh, or uh, us and the uh, uh, rest of the, uh, the biosphere. And, and it's definitely something that we can feel. It's something that has changed over time. We know that the Earth formed um, anoxic, basically. There was no oxygen production, almost no oxygen production, um, because cyanobacteria had not evolved photosynthesis. Um, the, the kind of photosynthesis that produces oxygen um, that we're breathing right now. Right. And so when people really, like myself included, talk about getting in that time machine and I would go back to the Carboniferous or I would go back to the Devonian just to see... It's not like a one for one. The atmosphere has always been the way it's been or the temperatures have always been. It would be a radically different, often unlivable place for you and I. But mm -hmm. life found a way. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. And, and, and it's really striking with plants because uh, photosynthesis is, uh, as, we, as I said, uh, basically taking out CO2 uh, and water uh, and then converting it into biomass, sugar, and then... Uh, releasing oxygen as a uh, so the molecular oxygen as a as a waste product, and and the CO two and the oxygen are in the atmosphere, and they really determine the conditions on the planet. They really determine the the greenhouse effect, how warm is our planet at any given time, and also the redox conditions. That's the oxygen. It it basically controls the availability. Um, of all oxidants which are used uh, for metabolism uh, by any organism uh, on the surface of our planet. So, so, so this one process, photosynthesis, is really, um, I would say, defining conditions uh, to some extent on, on our planet. And I would actually predict that we were to find, if we were to find life elsewhere outside our own solar system, it, it would have to be photosynthetic in order to be uh, seen, actually. <laughs> it's yeah. exciting premises to think about, especially I'm a huge sci-fi nerd and just thinking about what else could be out there. But the physical constraint, you know, physics, as far as I understand, doesn't change radically. But, you know, you don't have to go to another planet, per se, to think about an alien time in our history of the Earth. And, and the reason we connected today is because you've been working with your colleagues in an area or a time period in Earth's history that was truly alien. I mean, if we think about what life was like before forests emerged on the planet, mm -hmm. I, I can't even picture that landscape. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's fun. You can now uh, go online and, and ask uh, an AI, we call it algorithm, to generate a picture for you. And I tried to do that, and it's quite fun, actually. So uh, I encourage you to do so. 
but it's difficult yeah it, it's it's really i mean the world before uh forests is very different from from the one we can, we know today and the the world before land was colonized is not so much uh well it's also a long time ago but it's uh, it's maybe a uh, hundred million years earlier than than forests it's completely alien uh, to 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 what we have today. Um, just to say a few things, uh, for instance, uh, meandering rivers is something that uh, is basically uh, here on on the planet today because of plants. Uh, so <laughs> people think that the the way rain was falling on the continents and and and, and came off the continents were actually just draining off uh, as from a from from a pan. Uh, rather than um, yeah, meandering through uh, rivers, uh, so uh, lots of things are, are completely different. Um, but here, what we have looked at is basically trying to get a, a, a constraint or to understand how much CO two was there before forests appeared on our uh, planet, and, and that was the main thing. And that's you could say to some extent a, a physical uh, constraint, like. But we do, um, yeah, I can talk a little bit about how we got uh, this result uh, because it, previously it was thought that that uh, that we had maybe 10 times higher, 16 times higher uh, CO2 uh, levels in the atmosphere prior to the emergence of forests. And um, it has been a little bit of a, a problem for, for me and in, in my research field to understand how that could be because uh, we've seen that the uh, oxygen level in the atmosphere uh, must have increased earlier than that. Hmm. So, um, typically, our models would suggest that the oxygen rise and the CO two decline in the atmosphere would go together to some extent, not right. one to one, but they would sort of uh, uh, be inversely correlated of uh, some kind. So it was very difficult for me to understand why would it be that you had really high CO2 levels um, uh, prior to the emergence of forest. And you, and, and, and at that time, you also had really high oxygen levels. So, so um, there's something strange here going on. Um, so we decided to basically look uh, at um, what was the CO2 level uh, just before forests appeared uh, on our planet. And that's an interesting question to me, coming from completely outside of this field. You you mentioned throughout your work that this was a challenge to do. There wasn't a lot of information, or at least not really good bounded estimates on how much atmospheric CO2 was, was available pre-forests. Mm. Why is it that magical point of like, we understand what was going on after the forest emerged. What made it so difficult before then? I think anchoring it at a like getting the accurate number is very very difficult, and it, that's true for for most measures that we do. Um, so, so what we could see prior to this study um, was that there was probably higher CO two levels, um, but also and, and that there was a, a declining trend maybe um, uh, during the appearance of. Um, plants with roots and plants that got really tall, so trees and forests. Um, and there was this very beautiful, uh, I would say it's a, a fantastic theory, actually. It's uh, developed by uh, Bob Berner from uh, from Yale. Um, 
university and it's it's this uh, everything goes together very nicely here mm. where basically forests appeared they drew down the co2 level and as a consequence we saw climatic cooling and saw glaciated glaciated uh, um, areas at the at the poles um so it, it really explained a lot um but the problem was that when you look a little bit closer and when you try to understand what's the driver for driving down the CO2 level in the atmosphere, then it doesn't really work. It doesn't really make sense that forests should actually remove more CO2 than their um, shrub-like um, um, precursors. So, um, so, so we decided to look at it, and and as a consequence, we can we cannot say that the emergence of forests did not change the CO2 level at all. But we can say that if it did, it would only have been within maybe 100 ppm and not hmm. 6,000 ppm, which is like today we have 419 ppm CO2, which means yeah. uh, parts per million. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot more than pre-industrial pre levels. And we have this problem of global warming uh, as a result of this. But um, yeah, so, so the big question was... Uh, Okay, did we ever have like six thousand ppm in the atmosphere? And and it turns out that uh, probably not, uh, <laughs> or at least much lower than we used to think. Right, and that in and of itself is fascinating, especially when you place it in the context of what is going on in modern times. And one of the big things being battered around is sort of this carbon capture. Uh, attempt is to plant more forests and so in our heads mm. modern times it makes sense oh more trees more carbon sequestration less carbon in the atmosphere but mm. i always have to couch that in the fact that this was a very different time in earth's history so why was mm. there this disconnect between uh what you were thinking about in terms of atmospheric co2 and and larger trees versus those smaller shrubby or even what i would call like ambling ground cover mm. I think so. First of all, uh, two things that uh, our listeners here need to understand is that CO two is removed in two ways by plants. One is the obvious one that we everyone knows. I think uh, is that when you are a plant, uh, you fix the CO two and you build biomass. Mm. So the carbon from the atmosphere ends up as uh, as wood or as as uh, as plant material. Um, but there's another process which is even more important in our models, and that's the chemical weathering that mm. uh, occurs with the plant. So basically, when CO2 is dissolved in water, it produces um, carbonic acid, and that acid reacts with the um, minerals in the soil and dissolves the rock, basically. And that means that the CO2 that was in the atmosphere has reacted out now and basically disappears from the atmosphere and goes into the uh, rivers and ultimately into the ocean where it precipitates carbonate. Um, so so there's a, two sinks, you could say, for CO2. One is the biomass and one the other is the inorganic removal. And in the Earth system models, we can see that it's the chemical weathering that removes the CO2. Mm. And that occurs also once you have the forest up uh, so it's not just do doing growth of the plant to its full size, but it's also um, 
for for standing force that that has uh, has been there for for a long time. Um, and I think that's a process that we need to understand uh, more carefully. Also today, when we plant trees in order to remove CO two, it's great that we get the biomass and we can remove some CO two. But if it means that we are also reducing the chemical weathering on the longer time scales, then it's not a good idea. <laughs> and I'm not saying that this is necessarily true always, but uh, but uh, but it's worth keeping in mind that there are two processes that remove CO two at the same time. Sure, sure. The tree planting is great. It's just not a panacea and it's right place, right timing kind of thing. But this this chemical weathering is fascinating to me because it is this massive geological process that's just kind of... Uh, it's over here somewhere, and a lot, not a lot of people talking about it in that regard. And to kind of go back about what you were talking about, just in the way Earth looked, those meandering versus flowing streams or just laminar flow of water, this was also a time when there wasn't those deep organic horizons of soil to cover up a lot of the, mm. the hardcore geology, right. too. So there's a, a completely different process going on within the rhizosphere, regardless of how deep roots can go. Mm. That's true, and, and it's really something... I mean, we have very few soils preserved from 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 the time, but we do have some paleosols, they called, mm. and and, um, and 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 I think that's also part of the reason why earlier CO two estimates have been, um, let's say, misunderstood. Um, in fact, and that's because if okay, so this is a little bit uh, technical, but that's okay. One of the ways that that the CO two has been inferred for for, for this time period uh, has been through the um, carbonate that precipitates inside the soil, and you can measure from the isotopic composition. So the carbon exists in two different forms, as carbon twelve and carbon thirteen, and the ratio of these two. Um, uh, in a carbonate that precipitated in the soil could be used to infer what's the fraction of CO2 in the soil that comes from the atmosphere and how much comes from respired organic material. Wow. So basically, so there's, of course, when organic matter is produced, there's also some um, fungi, for instance, that um, uh, remineralize. Uh, that organic matter and decompose it uh, and, and, and returns it to CO2. So the question is, this carbonate that you're looking at, how much of the CO2 in the carbonate so has actually come from the atmosphere? Hmm. And um, there, if you had much less respiration in the soil, um, you would get this, uh, because you had less uh, poorly developed soils at the time, then you also get the idea that a larger fraction of the CO2 comes from the atmosphere or that the atmosphere had a very high CO2 content. And that might have been a, a mistake. At least it's fully consistent with our new results that are um, derived from plant fossils, actually. Uh, some completely different method um, that you get 600 ppm as we say, as, as we got here. And the 600 ppm is also consistent with the carbonate that you find in soils. But especially if you assume that a much smaller fraction of the CO2 that is inside the soil comes uh, from respired organic matter. Uh, so basically, what we are saying is that you, you can actually use our new results to calibrate all the other proxies. Wow. And, and get to the point where you understand, okay, so maybe these soils were not as uh, well-developed, were actually not 
lot less um, uh, active, you could say, than than modern soils. Wow, I I love that too. Just the fact that uh, outside of being a fascinating result in and of itself, you've given us a new calibration point to go back and check a lot of other lines of inference across time periods, but. The, the thing that really drew my attention to this work in the first place was your use of plant fossils. And as I understood it, historically, mm. it was you look at the stomata in the fossil, you figure it's less than it was today. So plants probably were more about water regulation than they were CO2 because the theory goes there was more CO2 in the air, if I understood it correctly. But you were able to look at fossils and modern relatives to really put that sort of concept to test. And, and that helped confirm what you're talking about today as well, correct? Yeah. That's right. I mean, there, there's been a number of different CO2 proxies, and, and they go together in a new, more, uh, say, sophisticated pro- proxy for CO2, or you can also say it's a it's a, a more developed proxy. So basically, there are three different measures that we did in ancient uh, fossilized uh, plants, mm-hmm. um, and specifically, we were looking at um, club mosses or lycophytes which are basically some of the earliest representative vascular plants from which we have really well-preserved fossils, um, including the organic material from Mm. them. So these are 410 to 380 million years old uh, fossils that we looked at. And and the three measures that we could do both in the ancient club mosses here, but also in modern uh, descendants of of that lineage. So basically these club mosses are still around and they look quite similar, or at least physiologically very similar to to uh, to the ancient ones. And and the three measures that we we could do in in both modern and, and uh, plants and, and in the fossils were the uh, stomata uh, density, so these little uh, openings by which the um, gas is exchanged between the plant and the and the atmosphere. We could look at the the frequency of the stomata. Um, and also the size of the stomata. And um, then we could also look at the uh, carbon isotopes. So the ratio between these two stable isotopes, carbon 12 and 13, which is fractionated um, during photosynthesis. So the um, enzymes that takes the CO2 and converts it into sugar uh, favors the carbon, the lighter carbon, the carbon 12. Uh, but you can see now, um, and and that process, so the fractionation of the of the isotopes, is sensitive to how much CO two there is in the environment. Right. And the the reason why that is um, is actually quite, um, uh, I think, pretty simple to understand because you can think of it uh, as if you had if the plant has enough CO two around um, its enzyme. Then, uh, then it would discriminate and favor the light isotope. But if you have very little CO two, it would basically take it all, and you mm. wouldn't see any discrimination between the air and and the and the biomass that is produced. Um, so, in that sense, the uh, the isotopic composition of plant material becomes a proxy for the CO two level, and that has been used for a while. But the problem is that plants can basically uh, change the way they take up the CO2. And uh, one way of doing that is by, for instance, minimizing the number of stomata or the frequency of stomata. Uh, and by that, uh, they have a, a smaller 
uh, uptake of CO2, but they also have a smaller loss of water, mm. which is a, a critical thing for, for early plants. Yeah. Uh, uh, as you can imagine, the, the plants evolved in the oceans um, and in, 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 in freshwater systems and and the invasion or the colonization of land was a was a, a struggle for 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 those plants because they could not uh, um, uh, um, tolerate uh, desiccation. So basically, um, one way of of basically preventing uh, desiccation is by minimizing uh, the frequency of stomata or the size of stomata. Mm. Yeah, it's. Uh... So extremely fortunate that some lycopods stuck around because one of the things that made me laugh was, yeah, we'd love to look at Kixonia or some of these other ancient ones. There's no modern equivalent of this today to even start comparing it to. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's right. And and so we, we thought the most obvious thing was actually to take a look at these lycophytes that we think we understand and basically calibrate um, a mis- mechanistic proxy. So by that we mean... Uh, we think we understand how plants like uh, modern club mosses are taking up the CO2. In fact, these plants are so simple that they cannot actually regulate the um, openings and oh. the closing of the of the stomata themselves. They they basically responding to the uh, passively to the um, water content in the in the leaf. Um, huh. So that makes them even simpler than than most uh, modern plants, um, or angiosperms or gymnosperms. Um, so, um, so what we did was basically we tried to see if we could determine the CO two level in the greenhouse. <laughs> so in the botanical garden uh, in Copenhagen, we have uh, a couple of species of of, of club mosses, and and we did these measurements stomata frequency, the size, and the carbon isotope composition of these plants. And then we got actually the right number within 100 ppm. Wow. Okay, that's not a fantastic precision, but sure. for the for the purpose here, it's sufficient. Right, right. So, yeah. And it, it at least narrows that confidence interval. So when you do go back 400 plus million years ago, you know, that's a much better interval than what you were getting previously. And it comes back again oh, yes. to this calibration point when you're putting all of these lines of evidence together if you're getting some correlation between them you know you're closer to something approaching the truth yeah and um we started out with one uh fossil assemblage from australia and and that was in itself a hilarious uh, (laughs) sort of uh, fight because we this these are the most contentious fossils i mean having the old oldest fossils of some kind in this case vascular plants you could say coxonia was also a vascular but it wasn't uh, there are no modern relatives as you just said right uh, so it's a it's a it's an extinct lineage but in australia they have deposits that presumably are at least 10 million years older than anywhere else in the world wow <laughs> uh, so and we went there to look if we could got, get the oldest fossils, but actually the oldest. So there are two plant assemblages in. So there are two layers that carry fossil um, lycophytes in Australia, and the older one we could only find the imprints <sighs> of of the of the of the of the plant, and not the plant material itself. Dang. <laughs> uh, so. 
So so actually we got the younger assemblage, which are just the same age as okay. many other places in the world. So it shouldn't be very contentious to use this <laughs> because it's not the oldest anyway. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you can imagine the uh, peer review process was uh, was pretty tough for a couple of reasons. But uh, of course, because we are trying to reject a long-standing paradigm, so that's fair enough that we got a lot of headwind here. But uh, but uh, also dealing with this, uh, let's say, mysteriously <laughs> old <laughs> uh, plant assemblies from Australia ma- made it even harder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then we got went on, and we uh, we have now uh, studied lycophytes and club mosses from I think it's eleven different deposits wow. around the world, um, and through thirty million years, and I think there's sixty six fossils that have been studied uh, for the isotope compositions uh, in total. So, and in every single case, we got the same result: hmm. six hundred ppm plus minus hundred. Uh, wow. Ish. I mean, it varied within 100 ppm. Sure, but dang, that's got to feel good <laughs> to have that kind of confirmation. Yeah, so, well, yeah, you could say that it's it sounds like a confirmation. I think it's it's solid. Um, I just can't see what it what what alternative explanation to lower CO2 you could have. Um, I'm very interested to see how the uh, community will receive this. It was never our intention to try and 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 tip over or reject the paradigm. We we just hope to get some some confirmation with the most a, a stronger proxy, basically. Sure. But um, but we didn't confirm the result uh, from previously. So wow. yeah. yeah. Now now we're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it made it through the peer review process, which isn't easy in and of itself. So you should be celebrating that. But you have all these great proxies. You have great calibration points to work with now and then you feed it into the model and the end result is really a, mm. not upsetting the paradigm in like a I'm sad way but it, it does challenge it and I love yeah. the idea of small plants having such a massive impact or at least a part in a big impact on what was going on in the atmosphere because the story of forests is an easy one to tell like I said in the beginning we can all get our head wrapped around that because we're facing a lot of the same conundrums today and trying to utilize forests to our advantage Here's a case where there's a bunch of essentially lycophytes, these ground covers making a huge impact. Now, mind you, vastly different landscape, but I think it's a really exciting jumping off point to then, like you said, see what the community does with it. Yeah. And I think, so this is, okay, so first it should be uh, emphasized that the oldest CO2 constraints that we have are now 410 million years. Nice. And um, land plants evolved 100 million, oh, let's say 480 million years ago, there were some non-vascular plants uh, starting to show up um, on the continents. Um, then you got vascular plants fossils, um, Cooksonia, for instance, 430 million years ago, and you also have spores from these vascular plants that go even further back. Hmm. Um, so um, we know that vascular plants had evolved uh, prior to the record. Um, and we, but we don't really know at the moment how the CO2 has declined um, at the time. What we do know, uh, we think we know at least, is that the oxygen level in the atmosphere has increased mm. uh, around the time, around 460, maybe 430 million years ago. There was a, a rising trend in the atmosphere. And 
if we combine that knowledge in Earth system models, the easiest explanation is that it's the emergence of vascular ecosystems that increase the oxygen level and simultaneously decline the CO2. Wow. So this is the beauty of the new uh, model that we, we, <laughs> we establish here is that it's a very simple one. It's, it's just the one event, basically, it's a transition that occurred when vascular appliance uh, evolved. And, and they had small roots. And what's really interesting is, um, again, looking at these club mosses, which are the representatives of, of this kind of, of, of plant, is that they, they really have a high weathering demand. They, um, <laughs> they, they need to harvest new nutrients from the minerals in the, um, in the, in the soil or in the crust that they mm. are standing on. Um, and they easily dry out, but then they send out these uh, horizontal runners like strawberry does, and then they find a spot where it's wetter and they can, where the spores can basically um, uh, say germinate and and um, yeah um, grow up to big plants. Uh, and for this reason, this lifestyle, uh, I'm thinking that maybe that is the reason why you got. Hmm. so much more weathering um, um and maybe they actually covered uh like occasionally not maybe not persistently but actually they they actually covered a lot of ground because they're very opportunistic and they just moved around um <laughs> and that's very different from trees i mean yeah. and and it sh this is this is also one of the reasons why i think we shouldn't be too surprised about this result is that forests actually are really good at recycling nutrients they have hmm. low weathering demand. If you cut down the rainforest in uh, in Brazil, or burn it down actually to get the nutrients out, next uh, water uh, or <laughs> rain rainy day, uh, you'll shovel all those nutrients off the ground, and they will be lost forever. Hmm. Uh, so uh, you need to slash and burn a new territory, and that's what 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 is driving agriculture unfortunately these days so so basically what i'm saying is that the evolution of trees and their root systems have basically been optimizing the nutrient retention in soil hmm. and for that reason there was no need for the for the roots to actually weather a whole lot of new minerals ah. um, allocate resources for that because the nutrients were there they were recycled if that's the case, there wouldn't also be new CO2 removal uh, in a standing forest compared to these opportunistic uh, primitive <laughs> ecosystems, you could say, where where weathering was a was a, a key to actually survive. So in that sense, we're changing also how we think uh, about the process that removes CO2 uh, and and actually also. Uh, harvest nutrients from from the uh from the uh continents man that is awesome insights to have gained through this work and it it just goes to show you that coming at these sorts of questions from different specialties you know from more of a physics chemistry geology background can really provide insights to all avenues of this sorts of inquiry i mean a different kind of appreciation and understanding of how plants change based on their physical attributes the way in which they make a living that's Absolutely mm -hmm. remarkable. So uh, thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's super fun. And it's probably also a bit um, uh, bold 
uh, to have all these statements because but but the beautiful thing about science here is that we make all these predictions that can be tested yes. um, so it's something that you can go out now and and see if, if, if that might be overstated what we have presented here is the simplest explanation and uh, it, it, it might be wrong but it's better than what we had before Exactly. And that is the most important part here is you can make bold predictions. You can say these big sort of outcomes that might challenge sort of orthodoxy or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, everything you've done here is testable. It's repeatable and people can go out and and test it in different formations, different sediment deposition, that sort of thing to get closer to what is actually going on to to make a more complete story. And that is the most important thing when it comes to any type of science is that we're all just chipping away at little pieces at a time and hoping mm-hmm. that the next person can pick up in a eloquent and, and logical way the next step mm-hmm. to this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the predictions, so we, we when you have the constraint uh, 600 ppm CO2, you can feed that into a climate model. For the um, for the Devonian for for the world uh, 400 million years ago continents were push, positioned differently and all sorts of processes that might be slightly different you can feed that in as as you like but if you do just a simple model and say okay take the existing models but that had maybe 2,000 maybe 4,000 ppm CO2 and then you decrease that level to 600 uh, then back in the 90s people thought that that uh, you would actually get a snowball earth even or really, really, really cold conditions if you did not have uh, very high CO2. And the reason for that is that the sun was fainter. um, So the solar insulation was about 3% less than today. Hmm. And for that reason, the earth would have been cooler. Um, So we checked that and we found that the it's true that there was uh, definitely ice at the poles um uh, the earth was partially uh glaciated above wow. 60 degrees um not actually at all uh like, like not perennial not at all uh all months but uh but um but uh, there was definitely the ice at the poles and and that's completely different from what was thought before so it's one of the predictions that we make is that there must be glacial uh deposits actually uh, mm. on gondwana so that's uh Probably in South America, um, you'd find these fossils, uh, or you find these deposits, but um, it hasn't been found yet. Hmm. Um, and that's definitely something that is sort of the, um, I would say, I, I think that should be tested for sure, uh, whether <laughs> that could be the case. But what we could do instead, um, so uh, is that we could look at the temperature uh, at different positions on the Earth, um, so there are ways you can infer seawater temperatures, hmm. um, and um, we checked that, and actually it came out that out of some twenty uh, different locations where there was temperature data, we got uh, just as good match for the wow. temperature uh, with six hundred ppm in the atmosphere as with two thousand uh, <laughs> ppm, and if you got even higher, it wouldn't be better. So it's it's uh, it was quite interesting that uh, that now we could make predictions for what kind of temperatures you would see, and especially at higher latitudes, you should see much colder conditions than than uh, than than previously thought. And we just don't have any data right now, but we can go and collect it. Uh, right. 
so so there are some 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 routes forward now to uh, to, to to basically test this new idea. Uh, hopefully, you gave some listeners some potential ideas there with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely join the uh, geobiology community. We <laughs> always need new people, new brains. <laughs> Very exciting. And so, for you, coming from more of the the physical side of things, did this work give you a deeper appreciation for plants? I mean, do you look at them a little bit differently, especially lycopods now? And you go, "Wow, good job, little buddies." Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was thrown sort of backwards into all this uh, because <laughs> uh, I, I I didn't know anything about uh, plant evolution, uh, but uh, looking at it, it's really really striking what a a profound change plants have made to our planet just the two things we talked about now is that the continents were basically dry and you couldn't live there as a as a as any organism or at least microscopic organism and and uh, there was no soil uh, <laughs> so uh, it was really really tough right and plants did both they created the soil of course in combination or sure. in collaboration with fungi but uh, yeah, and microorganisms. And, and it's really interesting now to ask these questions about, okay, how did the soils evolve? Who or which group of plants actually? And, and what was the role of fungi? And yeah, what about the animals? Did mm-hmm. they actually seed the whole thing? Uh, because it's striking. Uh, we know that plants evolved in the ocean maybe 1.56 billion years ago. Uh, so algae evolved um, back then, but they never evolved into uh, big microscopic organisms on land until animals got around. Hmm. Uh, so this is one of the, let me just end it there. And yeah, say, yeah. Could it be that the animals actually played a role in fertilizing the first soils? Was it the first tetrapods that went on land <laughs> that actually created the habitat for plants? Wow. So these things are questions that I'm thinking about now, but I, yeah, again, thrown backwards into it because I, I'm basically forced to think about it from the <laughs> results and not because I ever had the idea that this was how it worked. Uh, yeah. That's great, though. That's a great scientific story. And it's a mark of true passion. It sounds like you've really nailed it with this career path you've been on. <laughs> it's super much. It's so fun. It's so yeah. much fun. I love to hear that. And so for those listening that do agree with you that it is super fun and interesting, well, where do they go to find out more about the work that you do, the work that your lab does, and as well as your colleagues? How do they keep a finger on that pulse? Um, I'm right now updating uh, our website, our group website. It's called geobiology.dk uh, for Denmark. And um, But I think you can... Uh, um, you can follow me also at University of Copenhagen's uh, website, um, the Globe Institute. Um, so we're trying to uh, communicate through this, um, but also through uh, through public media um, and good podcasts like this. Excellent. Well, Dr. Dahl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for staying up late to talk with us. We really appreciate the effort. And all of the results and all of the work you put in, it's its fascinating. It gives us a deeper understanding of our planet and, heck, our origin story. So thank you so much. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Of course. Well, hang thank in there, you, stay healthy, and keep it up. All right. Incredible work. I can't even imagine the amount of effort that went into putting all of these lines of evidence together. And I thank Dr. Dahl for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about it. 
As always, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Over there, you can also find great ways to help support this show. Once again, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. You can also pick up a copy of my book, which is still 30% off over at mango.bz until the end of January. You can also browse our customizable merch or pick up some stickers as well. Speaking of supporters, I have a big shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Blake. Blake signed up at the producer credit level, so they are maximizing their support of this show. Thank you, Blake. And of course, thank you to all of my patrons. Otherwise, make sure to hit that subscribe button because as always, we have a ton of great conversations just over the horizon. So keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.